Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Thelen Narduzzi, an editor here at the TLS, and Lucy Dallas, our arts editor, is here with me too. Hello, Lucy. Hi, Thea. How are you? I'm all right, thank you. What's new with you? Any interesting Any interesting reading? Um, am I allowed to mention something that was in the TLS? <laughs> of course. I think you're contractually obliged. Contractually to. <laughs> obliged. I was reading a very interesting publication. Um, no, I just I was really interested this week is that we got a letter from the uh, widow of Borges, because um, remember we had, we talked to David Gallagher, who was talking about Jay Perini, who had written a book, which he yes. said was an account of his trip into the highlands with Borges in the 1970s. And um, David Gallagher said, this sounds a bit iffy to me. And then we had more letters in the TLS saying, oh no, I met them when they were on that trip. Yes, someone said that he saw the pair drinking pints in Highlands pub. Yeah, which is exactly one of the things that David Geiger thought it was pretty unlikely. And then Jay Perini, I think, wrote in and said, no, we really did make that trip. And now the uh, the widow of Borges himself has written us a short letter saying, Jay Perini's book should be considered as fiction. There was a trip to the Highlands, but I was on that trip. A trip to St Andrews, I think she said. Mm. Um, so the plot thickens. It's becoming very Borgesian. It's very circular and labyrinthine is. and all sorts of things. And probably quite fraught, really, because um, Borges's widow, Maria Kodama, she told an Argentinian newspaper in the middle of last year, this is what David Gallagher mentions in his piece, mm. um, La Nación, that she was with Borges on that trip to St Andrews and she has no memory of Perini. But she also says that if the book comes out in Argentina, she will have to act in some way or another because I cannot permit it. Mm. So it's all quite tense, isn't it? It is. And I suppose, yeah, what it's all happening on the TLS letters page as far it as I is. Tell. I'm beginning to think we need to get Bellingcat on the case. <laughs> I'm sure they've been listening as well. <laughs> they don't have more important things too. to do. <laughs> um, well, coming up on this week's show, what made the life of the little known 20th century German industrialist and writer Hasso Grabner so absurd? And how to tell the tale when the facts are so thin on the ground? A strange new book by the German writer Francis Nenick, translated by Katie Derbyshire, takes on the challenge. And Anna Aslanyan will fill us in. And we have a semi-regular feature in the TLS known as Rereading, in which a writer returns to a favourite or somehow pivotal book. This week, the novelist Andrew Michael Hurley has picked up his heavily annotated old copy of Larkin's Wits and Weddings. Alice Wadsworth, who commissions the series, will tell us more. But first, Lucy, over to you. One of the biggest non-fiction books to be published this year is already out. You may have heard about it. Bill Gates has written a book called How to Avoid a Climate Disaster, The Solutions We Have and the Breakthroughs We Need. It has received a huge amount of coverage and been picked over by politicians, climate scientists and, well, almost everybody. We asked the economist and author Anne Pettifor, whose most recent book is called The Case for the Green New Deal, to write about it for us. And we're delighted that she's joined us today to talk it through. Anne, many thanks for joining us. Thank you. Lovely to be here. It's there's, there's a big subject. We've got a lot to tackle, haven't we? Yeah, um, indeed. To start with, could you please just lay out what sort of book this is? Is, is Bill Gates pointing out problems or is he proposing solutions or both? 
So this is a an easy to read and accessible book, and it's to his credit that it is. Um, it's not very long, um, and it is proposing solutions. It's full of solutions, and those solutions are mainly technological. But having said that, you know, he writes in a very accessible style, and he he makes sense of this technology, and he he you know communicates it in a way that <clears throat> even I can understand. So um, so that for me is what is good about the book is that it is you know, it is for the public to read. And I suppose the other really important thing about the book is that he's written it and that it has the title that it has and that it's had the impact that it's had. So it's very good to see it be so mainstream that someone like Bill Gates can write a book and get it so widely publicised. So as you say, he's a great believer in technology finding the way, isn't he? But you yeah. point out that there are in the very there are dangers in the very example he uses, which is the Harbour Bosch process and the and the use of fertilizers um, yes. in in agriculture can you unpick that for us a bit well he thinks of our emissions greenhouse gas emissions as being like filling up a bath and um, the bath is gradually the levels of the bath water are rising and rising and and getting to a point where you know it's going to spill over and be catastrophic and his answer is to apply all sorts of technology to slow the emissions that are filling the bath. And what he doesn't do is to pull the plug on the emissions and say, we just have to stop emitting. Rather, he would like solutions that slow the trickle, if you like, of emissions so that it doesn't actually overflow. Um, and so he suggests all kinds of technologies, one of which is um, fertilizer. And But he fails to take into the account that in order for us to reuse this technology, quite often we have to, for example, burn steel. And steel requires much hotter and, and bigger uh, amounts of fossil fuels than almost any other manufacturing process. So it, it's as if we can go on creating all this new technology and not have an impact. And I, I find that's what's sort of delusional about the book. And then he picks on fertilizer and there's a picture of him at a fertilizer factory in Dar es Salaam in, in East Africa. Now I know Tanzania very really well. So he goes to a, a fertilizer factory and he has a picture taken of himself sort of like a little kid jumping up, you know, and down in front of all this fertilizer celebratory. And of course we need to remember that he himself is a farmer. He owns more farmland than any other American. That's an extraordinary uh, fact that came very much as a surprise to me. You wouldn't think of Bill Gates as the biggest owner of farmland in the US. Yes, and he doesn't talk about it very much. He's, mm. quite, he's quite quiet about it, but that's what happens when you make billions, you've got to put it somewhere and so you buy land. And land is an extraordinarily profitable thing to buy because it always generates rent in some form or another. And he no doubt applies fertilizer on the land or he, his farmers do it because I don't imagine for a moment that he does the actual farming. But anyway, um, what he fails to show is that this fertilizer um, really disrupts this, the structure of the soil ultimately. And, 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 um, and I'm no expert in agriculture, but I have a friend, a dear friend, her name is Vandenar Shiva. She's world renowned for her work on the Green Revolution, which is what she and thousands, millions of Indian farmers have lived through. And she makes the clear point that ultimately fertilizer depletes the soil of its nutrients and it pollutes water with nitrates and pesticides. And to be fair to Bill Gates, he comes to this conclusion in the book as well that actually much as he loves fertilizer, it's not going to be practical. And then in a footnote, he points out that Fritz Haber, the man that invented, uh, together with uh, his colleague Bosch, invented fertilizer, was also, he, he says, Fritz Haber had a complicated history, and I quote, <laughs> yes. was, in addition to his life-saving work on ammonia, he pioneered the use of chlorine and other poisonous gases as chemical weapons in World War I. And 
Vandana, when she refers to fertilizer, she refers to it as war chemicals made from fossil fuels. She calls them war chemicals made from fossil fuels. That was the other thing, isn't it? Because it takes, because the fertilizer, the, with the Haber-Bosch process, made, made the crops much more productive, yes. but you have to get the gas out of the ground to make it, use the energy to make the stuff. And then, as you say, so you do have a, a higher yield for a certain amount of time, but then it runs off and pollutes yes. the rivers and the land. But you say he does recognise that. He recognises that and he pulls back from fertiliser. But he's like a kid with a toy. You know, he loves technology and he loves all these new technological solutions and we know people like that we know blokes like that don't we and they're most <laughs> lovable and they have done wonderful things there are women like that too can i just there say? are women <laughs> like that too for sure but the point is they have to be restrained um so i i i way back in time before you were probably born i i was having to learn how to use all this new software and i struggled and i have to say that bill gates um, and Microsoft presented the software in a in a shape that I could understand and I could work with, really. Whereas all my friends who were working in the open source community, you know, I couldn't make sense of all their coding. It was all too much for me. So, you know, he has to be credited with actually making the stuff simpler, but he oversimplifies and he refuses to face the fact that actually we cannot go on digging up rare earths, finding these scarce minerals in places like the Congo and burning coal in order to, to grow steel, in order to build robots and all that sort of thing. So it's that that which I find worrying about um, his, his obsession, if you like, mm. technology. But, and there's another aspect to it, isn't there, of the, of the tech leading the way. You have a, a big problem with the way, um, with the intellectual property rights that those big corporations wield. Can you, yeah. can you tell us how that affects climate change? Well, it, it doesn't in this way, in a sense that inter intellectual property rights are a powerful weapon for earning rent. Um, for anyone who invents anything, basically. Now, we all believe in a certain amount of intellectual property. We all want Elvis to have been able to collect, and his family, to collect some revenues from the thing that he created. But we have rules about limiting intellectual property. And what's happened over the last 30 years is that it's been expanded. So intellectual property laws, of course, not confined to one state. They are global. And uh, Bill Gates has been able to hide behind these laws, if you like, to uh, sell computers, to sell software into Asia, Africa, you know, Europe, and have the American state defend his interests. Now, the thing about that is that that's not really capitalism. Uh, because if you think about capitalism, if you were, if you were a farmer growing tomatoes in the United States, and you went to market and too many people were growing tomatoes and the prices of the price of tomatoes fell, the state does not come to your aid. The state does not guarantee your price for those tomatoes. But in the case of Bill Gates, the state enforces the price by enforcing intellectual property law. And that's how people like Bill make such fabulous sums of money. They invent something new, a bit of new software, something like an app, you know, a piece of technology, and they get it stamped with intellectual property law. And then wherever that piece of property goes in the world, they can affix the price. And if you don't uh, adhere to that price, the American state comes after you. I'm not against intellectual property laws. It's a very bad thing when it guarantees prices for certain products and then prevents those products from becoming available to everybody because the price is artificially maintained at very high levels. And Bill Gates has excelled at that strategy, and that is what's made him so very, very wealthy. And so also, I mean, further down the line, the ironic twist is that this man who professes a love for innovation is, is, is stifling innovation. Indeed, indeed. You know, that is precisely that. If I can't compete because uh, there is a product out there and my new little invention, which I haven't got billions behind, is struggling to make its way because it's more innovative, it cannot normally get past these huge, huge monopolies. They've, they've just become enormous monopolies, big oligopolies, actually. Um, and you say that um, 
so the fact of, of, of Bill Gates belonging to the 1% of billionaires is, is very much part of the problem, but, um, because you quote this statistic that 10% of the global population cause 50% of the world's emissions. Is that right? That's right. And I must say, that's my biggest beef, really, because the whole book is premised on the fact that you and I, the little people, do this, we grow things, we move around, you know, we keep warm. And that's the problem the world is facing because we want to keep warm, because we want to grow things, because we want to move around. And so you read the book and you think, oh my goodness, I, you know, I ought to be doing something about moving around, growing things and keeping warm. And the idea that all these billionaires in their private planes are flying to Davos, for example, that was so blatant when it happened. Um, and then are lecturing us, the little people, to cut back on our emissions or to invent some new or buy some new technology, <laughs> something that they're producing. Because the other point about the book is that almost all of the technologies he recommends are technologies that he's invested in. So this is almost this book is almost a portfolio of his investment. <laughs> you know. And 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 no, but it, but this issue of you know the crowd and the little people must behave themselves, but we, the big people, the 1%, you know, there's only so few of us, so we can't be doing that much damage. Scientists are showing that actually, you know, if we if we curtail the emissions of the top 10%, even better of the top 20%, if we stop people going on exotic holidays every year, for example, splashing the cash, then we could do something about emissions in a very short period of time. To focus on the rest, on the 80%, the 90% or the, or the 70% is to give ourselves an almost unmanageable task and an unachievable task. And we're bound to fail at it. And then we'll all be blamed. I'm going to um, defend the billionaires now at this point. I'm just going to try and put the counterpoint to, to your argument. Yeah. Um, Bill Gates says he is aware that he is an imperfect messenger about climate change. He has invested, as you say, you say it's the book is like a portfolio of his investments, but he has put his money in it. As you say, he's invested billions of dollars into admittedly new technologies, but they are new technologies to try and tackle real problems. And he has also made huge reductions in malaria transmission across the world using technology and science. So there is an argument that says, hang on, he's doing the right thing. He's moving in the right direction. Uh, and, and it's fair enough for him to try and do that since he's done it pretty successfully with malaria. You know, if Fritz Haber had a complicated history, so does Bill Gates. And I absolutely agree with you about that. I mean, I worked in Africa. Um, I worked closely with people from the Gates Foundation. And there is no doubt that there are plenty of billionaires that have not chosen to invest their money in projects like, you know, ending malaria. Pharmaceutical companies were totally reluctant to do so. And Bill has kind of pushed and shoved and, and influenced and in order to get that changed. So that's, you know, that's why I'm ambivalent about the man, um, uh, but not about the, the big, big issues. Uh, and because he's not alone, you know, as one of the 1%, all of the 1% share this view that actually they're allowed to go on with their living standards and with their ambitions and doing what they do. And the rest of us have to mitigate and adapt. Um, so, you know, he, he belongs to a group that thinks like that, but he is not like all the rest of the group. I would, I would concede that. Mm -hmm. And is it because, so let's say he only chooses to look at the innovation side of things, because that's, that's what he does. That's what he's always done. Yeah. Um, is it, is it part of the problem? Do you think that he basically doesn't want to get involved in politics or economics? I mean, he talks a little bit apparently about yes. more, more corporate responsibility, but he's not saying, Oh, why don't all the huge corporations pay a bit more taxes? That's one thing you suggest. If they just, if they paid some more taxes, then the governments would have more money to deal with things like climate change, that, that yeah. kind of thing. Is that part of the problem that he doesn't want to engage in any of that? Yeah, and for good reason. Um, one of the great privileges that Bill Gates has is that he can move his money across borders without any hindrance whatsoever. If you and I want to go to Europe, or to, especially now in the age of a pandemic, or to the United States, we have to. We encounter a lot of friction at the border, passports, uh, filling in forms, visas, all of that stuff. He faces no such friction for the movement of his capital and nor do any of the other huge global 
Silicon Valley um, platforms. And as a result, they can make money in one continent and dump the profits in another, in a, uh, in a, in a haven, a tax haven. And they all do it. And Microsoft does it too. Microsoft has got a huge amount of uh, money and, and he has boosted the gross domestic product of a small place called Ireland really <laughs> most domestic product far <laughs> exceeds the capacity of the Irish people, right? Because he and Apple and others have shunted their money there. And they have that because of this enormous power that we have granted politically granted to these big corporations. And that makes it harder for countries to deal with climate breakdown because, you know, they've got to invest a great deal in transforming their economies away from a, an addiction to fossil fuels. And that means compensating shareholders of coal mines, compensating the workers of those coal mines, retraining the workers and, and helping them move into different spheres. All of that takes a lot of money. The other thing about him, he is quite boyish and he is like a, a boy who, who really loves, loves this stuff, this technology. And it is exciting, I can see. And I know engineers who do get excited by this stuff and who don't like the messiness of, of politics and, 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 you know, society and so on. And I mean, we, we all share that, you know, politics is pretty bloody awful at the moment. <laughs> yeah. And uh, who wants to get in there, you know? But on the other hand, politics is power. Politics is what gave him that power. And standing away from it is on one hand, you know, touching and sweet. On the other hand, it's a form of collusion. Mm. I'm just fantasizing about the kind of change that, that he could enact given the huge amount of land that he owns in the US alone. Mm. Just what could be achieved with that ownership in terms of, of changing things on a, even on a more local, you know, national basis in terms of the way uh, yeah. we farm and distribute food yeah. uh, and all. I mean, does he go into the food side of things or, or not? Well, really? He does a bit on the growing side, but it's always mm. about Africa and, and those poor countries because they don't have enough, um, their productivity levels are too low. But you're absolutely right. I mean, I don't know enough about the science of this, but we do know that the soil draws down carbon. But it only does that if it's, um, you know, if it's healthy soil. Mm. There's a wonderful movie out on Netflix, and I've forgotten what it's called now, but it's about how if you grow healthy soil um, with plants which develop long roots ultimately and absorb carbon and hold carbon, um, you know, you can do an awful lot to deal with, with emissions. You can absorb those that you can bring draw them down and into the soil and it's a good thing and in fact that is what the soil does largely but if the soil is just dirt or dust because it's been stripped of its nutrients and of its complexity if you like then it doesn't serve as a extractor of carbon from the atmosphere so as the biggest landowner you know farmland owner in in the united states he could play an enormous role in drawing down carbon. And, you know, we'd love him even more for that. <laughs> Bill Gates, if you're listening. <laughs> and if it's love that he's after. Yeah, yeah. Well, he, can, he can have our love for that, no problem. Yeah. Um, can I ask you then, Anne, if, if, we, if we shouldn't be listening to Bill Gates on, on how to avoid a climate disaster, who should we be listening to? Well, I'm back with Greta Thunberg here. We should be listening to the scientists, really. And the one I particularly listened to is Professor Kevin Anderson, who is at the Tyndall Centre at Manchester University and who's an advisor to the IPCC, um, and who is brutal about how much we have to change in order for civilization to survive. And I, I think although we're all talking about the climate, very few of us are talking about the possibility of civilizational collapse. And because that sounds grandiose and too big and too alarming, really. Um, but he doesn't hesitate to talk about that. And the other scam is the, the term net zero. Net zero means I can carry on doing what I'm doing as long as I'm also planting trees somewhere, basically, and as long as I'm offsetting my emissions. And a load of really big companies do that. The problem is there's a finite amount of space on Earth in which to grow trees to offset. I mean, BP are saying that, Shell say that, right? And then, you know, all the big corporations and the airlines all say that. And one of the things that bugs uh, Professor Anderson the most, 
we should not be talking about net zero. We should be talking about zero emissions. That, you know, we have to get down to stop emitting this poisonous stuff. Because not only is it bad to carry on filling up the bathtub, but once you fill up the bathtub, it's very hard to empty it. The stock of emissions are out there and they're forming a blanket around our planet, basically. And so the more we pump them up, the more we add to it, the more we pump up an existing stock. And, and Bill in this book doesn't make the distinction between emissions, the flow of emissions and the stock of emissions. You know, the flow of emissions is going into a bath that's pretty much already full of the stock of old emissions, really. So, um, so you know, I'm very much in favour of pulling the plug and going after zero emissions, which is what Professor Anderson argues as well. Okay, then that's our um, that's our mission. Pull the plug. <laughs> zero emissions. Pull the plug. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thank you so much, and Petipol for joining us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Still to come on the show, a strange new book takes on the life of Hasso Grabner, an industrialist com prolific writer of prose, poems and plays who died in obscurity in 1976. And we consider the questions and challenges that can bob to the surface on rereading certain books. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, this is a gentle reminder that you can subscribe to this podcast for free via your preferred podcast provider and you'll never miss an episode. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. Before we get to Hasso Grabner, who I suspect would be very surprised to find himself mentioned quite so much on a podcast in the 21st century, we are joined by Alice Wadsworth here to talk to us about rereading books. Hello, Alice. Hello, dear. Now, as I said before, um, this is a semi-regular feature in which writers choose a work to re-engage with. And Andrew Michael Hurley, his choice this week, uh, Philip Larkin's The Whitsun Weddings, is it's interesting also for the fact that he's going back to it from the perspective of a teacher isn't he so he's thinking about its value to himself personally as well as to a cohort of students he's long since lost touch with yes he's looking at his copy that he first um got when he was a new teacher 20 years ago which is heavily annotated in a way that he says was because he was anxious to pass on the correct interpretations and at that time kind of thought about it in that way a bit more and translating the text for his students um, and he says that these first kind of round of students were born around 1985 when Larkin died. 
it's interesting, I think, that he sees himself as a translator. It's translating across time, basically, because he thinks that the world that Philip Larkin is 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 documenting in his is, in his poems is, is just so alien to these people who were born in 85 86 i incidentally was born in 86 and i don't find it that alien <laughs> yeah i was also taught at a level actually <laughs> so i'm not too far off the age group he kind of scans because he talks about it starts in 85 and then around to people born in the millennium um he uses the word translate more widely but he also talks about translating specific terms like explaining what a guinea is or a porter or brie nylon which isn't a term i would have known either brie nylon um, i'm so old I, I, nylon. I, I think I'm, yeah, I'm sorry <laughs> exactly. i know how you say it that's how old i am brie nylon sounds like a kind of cheese yeah. substitute brie, brie <laughs> nylon sounds much nicer alien yeah. it is to me <laughs> yeah yeah that's that, that's a good thing to be honest um, um but, so alice when you when you studied it yourself then at A-level, because he says he, he finds himself, he's sort of amazed that, 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 that they're teaching this very world-weary sort of, um, in some ways, very cynical view of humanity, you know, to, to, to people who not only they're not fed up with life, but they haven't even kind of got in there yet. Did you find yourself relating to the concerns or thinking, you know? I didn't find him a hugely relatable protagonist when there were things that seemed like it was from his perspective. But when uh, Hurley talks about the big themes that he's addressing, like love, death, fear, um, and specifically talking about afternoons, uh, which is young mothers in the park, mm. kind of with their fear or expectation of what's being decided for them and pushing them to the side of their own lives. There was definitely parts of that, but in a kind of overdramatic teenage way, because this is A-level, I'm sure a lot of people felt they're relating to certain things. There are others that, that deal with the big things that, you know, that when they, that when they deal with death or loneliness or, you know, and some of these things that do, that actually anybody can, anybody can relate to them, teenagers just as well as, if not better than, and, and also we can just admire it as a work of art without, you know, feeling something similar. Yeah, I definitely agree with that because sometimes there's just a beautifully put sentence that appeals beyond. And that's actually what Hurley then talks about later when he's discussing how Larkin is pretty problematic, um, was very racist in his personal life in lots of ways, um, and separating that from the kind of universal truths or appeal of something, you know, that is an art and poetry. Um, and in that respect, he's really, I mean, by teaching something like that at a level, um, you're sort of setting your students up for that inevitable difficulty that that we all face in our lives at some point or for the duration of our lives when we have perhaps loved an artist or or loved a particular work of art that has then changed uh through realizing that you don't love other aspects of of their life of their views yeah because if anything the poems that we learn around a level or in school are probably the ones we will end up going back to or at least thinking about in different ways throughout our lives because they've been pushed in there at such a formative period. Um, Rereadings, uh, these these pieces, this series of pieces, I often tend to open out in this sort of way, don't they? I mean, the, the books becoming a kind of jumping off point for other thoughts and ideas that quite often carry you quite far from, from where you think you're going. Um, there's a particular, um, a recent piece by um, Alexander Starrett. He, he's rereading One Day in the Life of Ivan uh, Denisovich by uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn. And it was particularly moving and, and unexpected. Yes, it was really unexpected and really beautifully written. Uh, he contextualized it within, um, uh, around the meeting of his parents, talking about how they met through a chance encounter that was followed by an acoustic jam session that he's actually still heard a recording of. Um, that's, yeah, kind of on maybe the second day they met. And this book was given to his mum by his dad when she first arrived in the UK from Germany. So it might be the first time that someone's called it a nice short read with simple sentences, but this was the reason <laughs> why uh, his dad gave it to his mum because she was still you know, getting more proficient with English and reading in English. Um, and I think, I think the way he frames it is particularly beautiful because he read it first at the age of 11 uh, and it leads him to have a teacher kind of think maybe he'll recommend him other works <laughs> of a similar type and obviously they don't really fit in the same way because he was thinking about 
um, one day in the life of Ivan Denisovich kind of as an adventure because uh, he's he says that he's having a really excellent day in the gulag <laughs> so <laughs> he's in this terrible context um, uh, obviously but that's something that Sarek kind of realized, realized or like came to terms with on readings that were a bit later in life, um, but also held on to these small joys that are so much a part of the book. Well, I'm afraid time is short. We're going to have to let you go, Alice. But before you do, we cannot let you go without you talking very briefly about your lovely podcast piece in the arts pages. I think we're going to we're going to do a teaser for it and people are going to have to read the piece for themselves. But tell us very briefly what you were talking about. Okay, so I'm looking at two podcasts, um, both of which I suppose look around queer culture. Um, one of them is quite wide. They talk about a lot of academic things as well as kind of bad dates um, and then relate a lot from that in either queer theory or, you know, um, just advice for the world. And that's Food for Thought, um, which calls itself the lower back tattoo of the podcast world. And then there's Wheels on Fire, which is more on the kind of queer villainy side in a tongue-in-cheek way uh, which looks uh, absolutely fabulous and it's uh, three friends watching it over again and their observations. Well um, there you have it from Alexander Solzhenitsyn to absolutely fabulous. Um, Alice Wordsworth thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Now to an article by Anna Aslanian, who writes this week about a book called Journey Through a Tragicomic Century, The Absurd Life of Hasso Grabner by Francis Nanick, translated from the German by Katie Derbyshire. We suspect there's a good story coming when we read the very first line of Anna's review. Facts, once established, can be more fascinating than anything imagination might conjure. Hasso Grabner's story is, she suggests, the proof of this. Anna Aslanian joins us on the line now to tell us more. Anna, hello, and thanks for joining us. Hello, uh, thanks for having me. Um, let's start with some facts then. Um, can you give us the bare bones of Hasso Grabner's life? Um, Hasso Grabner was born in 1911 in Leipzig in Germany. And uh, there's little uh, that's known about his childhood, except that he grew up without a father and he lost his mother quite early. By the age of 15, he was, um, as uh, Francis Nenik says, um, almost an old hand in politics. Uh, in fact, he never finished school. He went straight into bookselling uh, and more importantly, into revolutionary activities. And in the summer of 1934, Grabner was uh, arrested along with a number of his comrades. And he got four years in prison for preparation of high treason which in fact meant that they just distributed some anti-Nazi leaflets. Um, anyhow, he got uh, four years and then uh, upon release was immediately sent to Buchenwald, where he spent two years working as a librarian. So then the war started and Grabner, like many political prisoners, was drafted into a penal battalion. He then spent most of the war in Corfu in Greece. And then after the war, Grabner lived in the GDR uh, to quote Nenik's punchy prose again, he jacked through all trades. Uh, so he did all sorts of things. At one point, he was put in charge of the country's entire steel industry. And then he kept oscillating between managing large industrial projects and working on the production line. And he, he writes a lot. He, he was writing a lot throughout this time. Yes, uh, as if all these developments and the sisters weren't enough to keep him busy, he also became a prolific author in the process. Uh, and he published poetry, plays, uh, novels. Uh, although eventually after yet another falling out with the party and with the authorities, they stopped publishing him. He died in 1976 and was soon forgotten by most. Did he ever write about his own life? Because it seems, it just seems absolutely extraordinary that that, that list of, of, of things that happened to him and that he did. Do, did he write about himself or was it all fiction? And um, Funnily enough, he didn't uh, actually document his life himself, which today in our age of autofiction seems a bit incredible. But um, to quote Nenik, he, uh, somewhere in the book he says, some make history and others rewrite it. So uh, in Nenik's view, uh, Rabner knew that any, presumably suspected that any attempt to write history would be on his part, would be then subject to 
been rewritten again. So he just concentrated on fiction. He's been strongly anti-Nazi his whole life, but 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 you got an Iron Cross. <laughs> Is that right? You got yeah. an Iron Cross for bravery within the German army. And then yeah, he, that's... Could, he could start a fight in an empty room, no matter what system he was in. Is that right? <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a, that's a very good way to put it. And uh, getting that Iron Cross, I think it's one of the most absurd things in, in his life, which by any kind of standard was full of absurdities. So... He was in the penal battalion, so again, there wasn't. He he, he was drafted into it, and um, um, he had no choice there. Then they started retreating, and um, at one point, this company was attacked in the middle of the night. So they fought. He stabbed someone, and the next morning, he saw that the man he killed with his bayonet had a red star on his hat. And Grabner secretly removed that star. Now we don't know what he actually thought when he stood there holding that star in one hand and the medal he received for his bravery in the other. So all we know is that his journey actually began with a red star. You know, those stars appeared on the communist leaflets he once produced and distributed to protest against Nazism. That was what brought him here. And now he is marching on with a Nazi medal on his chest while in his pocket is a red star from the hat of a killed enemy. The facts are not many. Um, there's not a lot of corroborating stuff. If you, you know, if you were going to write a conventional biography, you would need more than this, I suppose. Um, but Nenek, you say he turns a paucity of information about um, about his subject into an advantage. Um, he uses history to to bring each discovered detail into focus. So, can you give us an example of of what he's doing, something to illustrate how this works in practice? Yeah, for instance, um, uh, to begin with. Um, uh the backstory of this project um so uh, nenik says in his afterward that he was actually interested in uh forgotten writers uh and he almost set himself a set of um rules so the one of the prerequisites for his project was that there should be no secondary literature and no wikipedia entry for uh <laughs> the writers he's going to write about. So, uh, and then he had to kind of optimize to balance between finding absolutely nothing and at least having some sources at his disposal. Um, then he came across uh, an article about Grobner, which was dedicated to his centenary, I think. Uh, and, um, uh, and he said bingo, although in actual fact, it wasn't a bingo at all because there was just a mere outline of his biography, which ended with how could such a personality have been forgotten? So Nenik uh, begins to sift through documents which are scattered all over different archives. He collects, collects uh, oral testimonies and letters. He finds specialists who help him uh, find documents on Buchenwald, on, uh, on the war, on the post-war GDR. Uh, and um, so he gets access to his subjects, diaries, letters, other, other writings. Um, but uh, this is, as you quite rightly pointed out, still not enough. So he needs to try and contextualize some, some of those facts, at least. Uh, and he does what most writers would do. Um, he reads all newspapers and tries to reconstruct the world that surrounded Grabner, the very century that first produced him and then swallowed him without a trace. Um, I've seen this book described as, um, as a novel, elsewhere as a biography, in another place, it was a memoir. Would you venture a label of your own? I mean, I know I know these labels aren't really important, but it is, I think, interesting to know how and why they're being played with, because presumably there's some kind of theory on Nenek's part about what history is, I suppose. Uh, well, the publisher, uh, being Q Books, uh, defines this uh, as a thrilling slice of narrative nonfiction, and I can't see any problem with that, but if I had to coin my own term, I'd probably call it a bio-novel, which is to say a biography that could easily be a novel, but prefers not to. Nenik's take on um, history writing is, um, he just calls it basically speculative fiction, which I suppose to an extent it might be true. Uh, so he himself chooses a path which is kind of somewhere between uh, uh, history and fiction. There's something quite surprising, I suppose, about, I mean, this is a book about um, an obscure German industrialist come writer. So it's kind of surprising, I suppose, that Nenek style, it's 
it's it's quite chatty, isn't it? It's quite chatty uh, yeah, and, and it's humorous. It's very very ironic. I'd say he uh, balances between uh, being metaphorical and uh, ironic. His prose is very punchy. Uh, for instance, he says things like uh, Grabner's future is gradually ticking away, attempting to tiptoe past him unnoticed, while the whole socialist thing is struggling along. Or in his uh, anti-war resistance, Grabner takes on the powerful role of a single spanner, realizing every day anew that it would take a whole battery of toolboxes to stop the machinery for even a second. So there is kind of a metaphorical, uh, quite heavy, sometimes even ponderous sentences. So I think these ponderous sentences are just another example of Nenik's irony. An attempt to parody this grand style, which is typical for much of the much of 20th century discourse, to take that century down a peg, to put the comic back in a tragic comic. I was going to say, do you think it's he, he's attempting to to enact in the narrative some of the absurdity of, of, of what's going on in Grabner's life? Uh, very much so. I think that's precisely what his project is about. And he dedicates uh, all his um, writerly skills to that. He will happily forego some of the kind of special effects that he might have brought in. And we've already uh, said something about his uh, uh, reluctance to be a novelist, to use novelistic devices. Uh, but he just um, tweaks his own style in order, the better to reflect what was happening and how absurd and how uh, grotesque uh, much of it was. Mm. Oh, and I mean, you're, you're a translator. Um, indeed, you're, you're writing history of translation, aren't you? So, I mean, you, you must appreciate how hard it is to convey... I mean, not only the humour and the kind of, I mean, humour being so culturally specific in many cases, but also the idiosyncrasies of, of the style and the structures from the German into, in, into the English. This must be, this must be a joy to you <laughs> to see this being done by a new publishing house, I suppose, as well. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, the, uh, first of all, a couple of words about the uh, publishing house. Vinky Books is the English language imprint uh, recently founded by Katie Derbyshire, who translated this book. And their aim is to promote German literature in the Anglophone world and more generally and more urgently to foster links between the UK and Europe, which is something we need now more than ever. Um, so um, uh, I've read uh, just a few, the, the first few titles from BNQ and I look forward to reading more. And uh, what you asked about translation, um, yeah, one of the points I make in my book, um, which is a popular history of translation and is finished and I'll be out in May, but um, I uh, wrote it partly to discuss this point that there is no such thing as word for word translation. It seems to be an obvious point, but people often overlook it. Um, and also another interesting phenomenon uh, is that literary translators can um, roughly be divided into two schools. So one um, school works on the principle that you have to, as a translator, you have to try to stay invisible. Uh, and the other says that it's okay to actually leave your mark. So the first school is traditionally quite strong in Anglophone countries. Uh, the translator's brief seems to be, just give us a text that reads smoothly in English. Who cares what language it's been translated from? Who cares what kind of peculiarities the original has? Whereas the other school insists that a translation should bear some kind of foreign uh, marks. Some foreign features should still be visible. Now, I don't see these principles as uh, irreconcilable. In fact, I think uh, translation is all about searching for a golden mean between these two extremes. And that's precisely why I admire uh, Katie Derbyshire's work. Uh, particularly this translation. I should say straight away that I haven't read the original, my German is quite basic, but her version uh, in itself is enough to convince me that she manages to strike the right balance by, on the one hand, making the text very fluid, while at the same time retaining some of its foreignness, in the sense that uh, if you pick up, the, pick up this book, you are unlikely to think that it was originally written in English. So, uh, and then irony, uh, and uh, as a potential challenge for translators, um, in fact, some translators, including myself, see irony as a welcome challenge. It kind of keeps you on your toes and it, it encourages you to be inventive. Uh, and it seems to be that Derbyshire uh, also takes this challenge on happily and she deals with it brilliantly. I spotted another book on, on the website by Isabel Bogdan. Uh, it's translated by Annie Rutherford. 
and it just in terms of a publishing project it just it just sounds so interesting um uh, this this particular book is called uh, the peacock is this one of the ones that you've read maybe anna Oh, uh, no, no, unfortunately. Okay, well, it's, it's summarised as follows, and if you haven't read it yet, you might want to after this. It says, Take a dilapidated castle in the Scottish Highlands, add a peacock gone rogue, a group of bankers on a team-building trip, an overwhelmed psychologist, a housekeeper with a broken arm, and an ingenious cook. Get Lord and Lady Mackintosh to try and keep it all together and top it off with all sorts of animals. Soon no one will know exactly what's going on. <laughs> it just, it mm. sounds brilliant. It sounds like a film collaboration mm -hmm. between like Yorgos Lantimos and Paolo Sorrentino or something. Sounds like a really good holiday. <laughs> Doesn't it? <laughs> Exhausting. Yeah. <laughs> mm. No, it also sounds very energetic. I think uh, the few titles uh, are published by this new imprint, they, they kind of have this energy, at least to me, they they brought in this very welcome note of something punchy, energetic, uh, and um, uh, I think that's uh, that's what good literature should yeah. be like. Yeah, absolutely. They say they plan to burst plenty of myths, including the one about the Germans having no sense of humour. <laughs> well, I think this book has already done uh, quite a lot towards that, because uh, having, well, you, you really chuckle... Uh, quite a lot. Every page is full of uh, puns, uh, jokes, ironic statements. So yeah, it's as subtle and as uh, funny as can be. Well, all of which is to say, I think we can all agree uh, that we are looking forward to more. Absolutely. Um, Anna Aslanyan, many thanks for joining us today. Thank you. is all we have time for this week our thanks go to Anne Pettifor, Alice Wadsworth and Anna Aslanyan thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast produced by Lee Meyer we'll be back next week but for now from Lucy Dallas and from me goodbye Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.